Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. In this episode, we look at the effects of clonality on ageing in a starfish species and how commensalism affects population genetics in rats. Except for perhaps bats, small mammal dispersal is strongly affected by geographical barriers things like large bodies of water or mountain ranges. But some small mammals have adapted to live in close proximity to humans, as commensals, and as well as benefiting from the food and shelter offered by such a lifestyle, they may also be passively transported over large distances, in agricultural products, for example. One classic example is the black rat, Ratus ratus. By hitching a ride across these would-be geographical barriers, this species is predicted to have lower genetic differentiation and higher migration rates than a non-commensal species from the same area, Ratus satari. That was the hypothesis posed by Amrita Varudka at the National Centre for Biological Sciences in Bangalore, India. She and her colleague did a population genetic study of these two species, which live in Simpatri in the western Ghats mountains of southern India. Varudka really loves rats, and she starts off by telling us why. There are lots of species of rats, especially I think it's the most species of the group Rodentia itself, which is the most species of all mammals. So I find it really fascinating that rats have this incredible amount of diversity. And in addition to being all this restricted to forested habitats and all, they also do uh, come in close contact with humans. So which is something that I really find very interesting about rats. And that close association with humans is something we call commensalism. How widespread is that in the mammals? How widespread is a very difficult question, but there are a lot of mammals which you find very commonly being commensals. Like you have rats, you have mice, then uh, we have sometimes foxes who become commensals or raccoons which become commensals. We often have shrews here in India which do not seem to become commensal elsewhere. Being a commensal is, I think, like a... Uh, it's it's basically a matter of opportunity. If you get to exploit the anthropogenic habitat at any given place, then you can be called as commensal. And how might commensalism affect a small mammal's lifestyle? First of all, I think that the food resources which are available to the commensals will be very different. They might also have a lot of places where they can nest. So the way that a commensal habitat is structured will be very different from a wild habitat. So you might have small mammals which have a sort of aggregation. They are not distributed evenly throughout a commensal habitat, but they are present in very small pockets, and they, but they are present in very high density. And another aspect of a small commensal mammal's lifestyle is its dispersalability. Yeah, so basically small mammals, they do not have a very high dispersal ability innately. They cannot disperse very log- large distances. But commensal small mammals might be passively transported by humans along with goods like agricultural products. So this would probably accentuate their dispersal ability to longer distances, which is what we are terming as jump dispersal in our paper. 
Okay, so tell me about the study population that you looked at in this research. We adopted a kind of a pairwise sampling approach. We wanted to look at a commensal species and a non-commensal species in habitats very close to each other. And then we wanted to compare how gene flow is maintained in these populations. So if you look at uh, mountain ranges, mountain ranges present uh, very uh, strong barriers to dispersal. So we wanted to see if we sample across a mountain range and in a pairwise manner, uh, we sample the commensal rats and the non-commensal rat, and then we see how gene flow is achieved through this. So at every location, we chose a forest and a village, which is in close proximity. The good part about Western Ghats in India is that it's got such a mosaic of forests and villages, which are very close to each other. So you sampled these two species from villages and the surrounding forests in the Western Ghats of southern India. What was your hypothesis then? Our hypothesis was that if passive transportation plays a major role in the dispersal of commensal, or if it is accentuating their dispersal ability, then you would observe that the gene flow among the commensal species is higher than that of the non-commensal species. We tested if migration rates are lower in the non-commensal species, which are like, like two sides of the same coin. Then we also tested if there is any uh, effect of genetic isolation by geographic distance. So in the case of commensal, you would expect that since they could be passively transported by humans, there would perhaps be no effect of geographic distance on the gene flow. Whereas in a non-commensal species, you might expect them to have a higher genetic isolation by geographic distance. And just tell us a bit more about these two species. Okay, so we looked at Ratus ratus, which is the black rat, distributed throughout the world, uh, but it's believed to be native to Southeast Asia. And the other species is uh, Ratus satare, which is uh, endemic to the Western Ghats of India. Yeah, it's basically the most commonly trapped species in this region. Right, and your assumption was that Ratus satare was non-commensal, whereas the black rat, of course, is a commensal species. Yes, yes, that was our assumption. In terms of the results then, did the habitat partitioning play out as you'd expected? In other words, were your assumptions correct about these species being commensal and non-commensal? Yeah, that's what we observed during our sampling. We found that the black rat was very majorly captured from villages and the forest rat was, of course, majorly captured from the forest. So this could possibly suggest that the black rat is certainly a commensal and the other rat is certainly a non-commensal. Your idea then was to look at the population genetics and see whether this commensalism had an effect on the genetic differentiation. First of all, did you find high levels of genetic differentiation overall? Overall, the level of genetic differentiation was not very high. It was like on the moderate side, for microsatellites at least. The reason for this could be that rats often have very high effective population size. That could result in lower FST values. Okay, but you did find a difference between the commensal and the non-commensal. Tell me about that. So we observed that uh, the genetic differentiation um, across the landscape for the non-commensal species, Ratus satare, was much higher than that for uh, Ratus ratus, for the commensal Ratus ratus. We also observed a lot of structuring in the non-commensal species, Ratus satare, and there was absolutely no clustering in the commensal species, Ratus ratus. Right, and that's kind of exactly what you'd expected. That's exactly what we expected, yes. So it sounds like being a commensal species wipes out your population's genetic differentiation and increases migration. Is this a good thing for a commensal species? Well, gene flow is always considered to be a good thing because it helps maintain the genetic diversity. But um, there are other effects like local adaptation 
which means adaptation to very local conditions, localized climatic conditions, which may break down in presence of very high levels of gene flow. So on the whole, it may be a good thing, but then other factors like local adaptation might be affected. It's almost like by getting food and shelter and hitchhiking rides across mountains like this, the commensal species escape natural selection. Yes, they escape this natural selection, but still you might have some very local levels of adaptation to any aspect of the habitat, which might not hold true in uh, scenarios of very high gene flow. Have you got any other ideas about how commensalism might affect the evolutionary trajectory of a species? So uh, adaptation to commensalism itself uh, requires uh, a lot of evolutionary changes. So, like, they have to adapt to different food resources, they have to possibly change their behavioral patterns, they uh, uh, sometimes have to uh, uh, adapt to the pesticides that, uh, or rodenticides that humans use. So, I'm sure, uh, so definitely commensalism with humans is bound to affect, affect their, uh, their evolutionary trajectories, which will be quite interesting to study. That was Amrita Vrudka at the National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore, India. Next up, we meet Alex Garcia Cisneros, a biologist at the University of Barcelona who's been working on a wonderful species of starfish, Cosinosterios tenuispina. This species can reproduce asexually via fission, where an adult breaks into two, forming two new genetically identical individuals. But what happens to an asexual species telomeres when they reproduce in this way? How come such clones, which can live potentially for hundreds if not thousands of years, don't succumb to degradation and ageing? Telomeres, after all, tend to shorten throughout an individual's lifetime as DNA gets replicated, but it's been noticed in other asexual species in the lab that something prevents their telomeres from degrading on each new generation. Alex and his team sampled wild populations of this starfish in order to see if telomere length was being restored and at what stage of this species' life cycle. I started off by asking him what telomeres have to do with ageing. Well, telomeres are a tandem repeat of linear sequences at the end of chromosomes. They can repress expression of some genes that are at the end of the chromosome structure, and after each cell division, telomeres shorten. So after many cell divisions, the telomeres are shorter, so there's many studies that look at it and see that shorter telomeres are related with aging. And so for this reason, they can be used as a marker for aging? Yeah, they can be used as a marker of aging, but the problem is that the length of telomeres can be related to many other things, like different genetics of different individuals, or the environmental, or stress of one individual. So you can relate the telomere length of a population to see if this population is more younger or or more old. But to relate the telomere length of only one individual, it's difficult to know the age. Okay, now the species you were looking at was an asexual starfish. Tell me about it. Well, this species, named Costinasteria stenospina, are able to reproduce even sexually and asexually. We saw that this species mainly lives in rocky shores, normally under the rocks, and uh, they have a distribution in the whole Mediterranean and, and Atlantic in temperate waters. 
Right, so this species can reproduce asexually by fission, where the whole animal splits into two, forming two new individuals. And so if these starfish do this a lot, do you find them to be all genetically identical in one population? Well, yeah, we work at in, in four populations, and uh, one of them, we found that all the sampled individuals were exactly the same clone. So this was really impressive. We didn't expect that uh, one population was exactly the same. We didn't find any any other individual that came from other sexual events. So I imagine it's pretty difficult to determine the age of these animals. Yeah, because, for example, we can think that the size of an individual could be related with age, but we think that uh, size is not related with, with age, for example, no? Another way to determine the age of one individual or one clone can be the accumulation of somatic mutations. But with the markers we worked with, microsatellites, we didn't find any somatic mutations, so it was impossible to, to determine exactly the age. Moreover, the telomeres that we worked we see that, for example, in, in Canary Islands, where there were individuals with very different sizes, there were not any correlation between telomere length and size. What happens to an asexual organism's telomeres then as they reproduce? It depends about the kind of clonal organisms. For example, there's different ways to reproduce clonally, like uh, budding or parthenogenesis that uh, clonal individuals became from uh, unfertilized eggs or few cells. But here, the starfish, you get to different adults and in different organisms that also reproduce by fission. We saw that, for example, in flatworms, there were mechanisms of telomerase that elongate telomeres. So it was already described some mechanisms to rejuvenate themselves. Okay, so we know that some organisms have this ability to rejuvenate themselves, to elongate their telomeres, but that study in flatworms that you just mentioned and others like it have been done in the lab, and this study was in the wild. Tell me about the main aims of your study. Well, the purpose of our study was to, first of all, determine the rates of sexual reproduction and asexual reproduction between different populations. So we worked with Mediterranean populations and populations from Canary Islands. Then determine how the different rates of sexually or asexually reproduction affect on their aging or fitness by using telomere length. And uh, finally, explore uh, the mechanisms of telomere length in regenerating and non-regenerating arms from the same individual. So in terms of that first aim then, assessing the rates of sexual versus asexual reproduction, what did you find? Well, we found that in Canary Islands there were much more diversity of different genotypes. This indicates that uh, sexually was uh, more frequent in, in these populations. In the Mediterranean, there were one population with only one genotype. All individuals were the same clone, exactly the same clone. So how did these high levels of clonal reproduction in the Mediterranean population affect their telomere length? What we found was those populations that had higher genetic diversity had shorter telomeres. And those populations from the Mediterranean that were mainly asexually or had 
very low genetic diversity, genotype diversities, they had longer telomeres. And why do you think that is? Well, to answer this question, we compared regenerating and non-regenerating arms from the same individuals. We picked up 12 individuals that just divided themselves, recent fragmentation. We measured the telomere length of regenerating and non-regenerating arms. And uh, what we found was very interesting. We see that in non-regenerating arms, telomeres were shorter than in those arms that was in a regenerating process. So inside the same individual, we saw that telomere length was different in the same tissues, depending on if they are in regenerating or non-regenerating arms. That tells us that after asexual reproduction, individuals are able to elongate their telomeres in the new tissues. So do we know the mechanism behind the elongation? Well, the mechanism to elongate telomeres we didn't work it with, but the most common mechanism was telomerase. However, there are other mechanisms to elongate telomeres like recombination between sister telomeres, but we don't know that uh, mechanisms in this species. Why would these starfish ever do sex if they can just keep rejuvenating themselves? Well, the problem is that there are many other mechanisms that manifest aging, and if you only reproduce asexually, you will be accumulating mutations. Like if the, the theory of Muller's ratchet, you won't have many diversity. For example, in our populations that we worked with, those that have large rates of asexually had very low diversity because all individuals have the same genotype. So if there's any environmental change, the population won't have any response to it. Moreover, there's other mechanisms to manifest aging like oxidative damage or even cancers. We don't know if with this accumulation of somatic mutations, the clone or the genotype are more predisposed to have cancer or any other genetic problems. Are you telling me that these starfish are potentially immortal? Well, this is hard to say. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, by the moment, we see that one of the mechanisms to avoid the aging is working, but there's many other mechanisms. So we need more studies to, to answer properly this question. That was Alex Garcia Cisneros from the University of Barcelona. And that's it from me this month. Join us again next time for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.